We're going to be looking at verse, uh, verse 6 and we're going to go right through to the end of verse 11. First Timothy chapter 4 and commence at verse 6. Pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. But have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, for bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. For it is for this we labour and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Saviour of all men, especially of believers. Prescribe and teach these things. I'm sure God will add a blessing to his word this morning. A few weeks ago I was invited out for coffee for the purpose of meeting up with a pastor whom I'd never met in a city. And so I did go into the city and after preliminary uh, introductions were over, this pastor shared with me his struggles and some of the difficulties he was experiencing in dealing with the leaders of his denomination. This man was being pressured by his hierarchy, can I say, to change direction of his church to pursue a more socially relevant so-called gospel rather than pursuing a Bible-centered and Christ-exalting gospel. And this man was really struggling. It was his desire to serve the Lord uh, as a pastor, as a minister, through making the word of God known as clear as he possibly could. And he felt alone and he dearly wanted encouragement and he dearly wanted counsel from a like-minded and somewhat senior pastor. So he picked me. Well, he didn't pick me. The guy that uh, invited me did. And being some years younger than me in all this, I was reminded of the relationship between the Apostle Paul when he wrote this letter to young Timothy who was under the pump as a pastor of the church of Ephesus. Not that I'm equating myself with the Apostle Paul, far from it, but as I saw the frustration and the longing and even the hurt in this man's eyes, I tried to understand his predicament in order to encourage him. And this is what Paul is doing with young Timothy in this letter. Timothy was left in Ephesus, located in a a, a pagan city, to face alone the many problems associated with a growing church in that kind of environment. I'm sure Timothy would have loved to send Paul a text saying, I'm facing some real problems, Paul in the church and I need your counsel and if you're free, meet me at the Funk Cafe in Perry Street. We we need to have a chat. I'm sure he would have loved to do that. Well, perhaps he had said 
many times I wish Paul was here when I really need him. But we here this morning and with every other church, Bible-believing church down through the 20th centuries can be so glad that Paul wasn't there, right? Because if he was, we wouldn't have this letter. And so we have this letter with us and Timothy welcomed this letter. He would have welcomed this letter because this letter brought with it so much encouragement to Timothy in the midst of his loneliness and his hurt and the demanding ministry of this growing church at Ephesus. But Paul's encouragement, not just an arm around the shoulder kind of thing and say, oh, keep looking up, brother, and then moving on. Paul's encouragement does not ignore the real issues. It doesn't ignore the real issues that were going down in Ephesus. That's why he does not, Paul does not mince words when he writes to Timothy. He knew that Timothy was really under the pump and what Timothy needed was a cool head, a loving heart, godly conduct and a faith that was unwavering. Paul knew that's what he needed. And so Paul, inspired by the Spirit of God, provides a solution. He gives the encouragement, he gives the counsel Timothy needed to be a good servant of Jesus Christ. And in our text, Paul continues with his charge to Timothy, as we have spoken of. And in this charge, he emphasizes that what Timothy says and how he lives can contribute to the health and spiritual well-being of the assembly in Ephesus and the people he was working with, big time. In other words, here is the positive side of being a good minister a good pastor, a good servant of the Lord Jesus, here is the positive side set against the negative and the destructive side of the false teachers that we have read of in the prior verses. So Paul stresses, I've highlighted six things in this section that are important for Timothy's life and ministry and, might I say, for ours as well, okay? The first thing that I have there is that a good servant of Jesus Christ warns his people of erroneous teaching. We see this in the first part of verse 6. And the first thing I want you all to take note of is what Timothy will be if he follows the counsel given by the apostle. He will be what? A good servant of Jesus Christ. You see that? Now, at the heart of this descriptive title is the word servant. And you have all heard it before. The Greek word, for those who are interested, is the word diakonos on this occasion. Many other times where we have the word servant in our English translation, it's the word doulos, which literally is slave, which speaks of who we belong to. But here it is diakonos. And this is where we get the word, by the way, deacon from because it generally describes one who serves. Hence our translators have done a good job on this occasion, a good servant of Jesus Christ. The word good, just for your interest, can also be translated admirable or excellent. And actually the same word of good or excellent, the same Greek word is used in chapter 3 verse 1 and uh, where it describes the ministry. He who desires the office of an elder or an overseer desires a good thing. That's the, that's the idea there. And in verse 6, it is 
So there it describes the ministry as being good, and here in verse 6 it describes the man in the ministry as being good, a good servant of Jesus Christ. But also I want you to see that in this context, the word servant or diakonos is not describing a member of the clergy or some office holder in the church, as we would say. Now the importance of this is plain. Because this servant description therefore includes every believer. How can I say that? Because every believer is called to serve the Lord, right? So especially if any of us are in the ministry of teaching or leading or discipling someone in private or public capacity, it kind of escapes, no one escapes out of that. We are all called to serve the Lord. And so this is what makes this counsel applicable to every believer. So we can ask you, what does verse 6 say about the making of a good servant of Jesus Christ? What does it say? It says this, a good servant, and I'll just paraphrase this, a good servant of Jesus Christ will be on the lookout for bad theology. You got that? Paul's been saying this over and over in this letter so far, and he's just said it in the first six verses of chapter 4. He's reminding Timothy that one mark of a faithful minister is that he not only faithfully teaches what the Bible says, but he also warns the people of God against erroneous teaching. False teaching. That's what Paul means when he says, in pointing out these things to the brethren. He's referring back to what he's already spoken of which is false teaching. In other words, a good servant of Jesus Christ uncovers and alerts his people, his students, his family, his children, his flock, his spouse, to false teaching that is erroneous and destructive to biblical faith. This means that a good servant not only stands guard for his own spiritual well-being and preservation, but he also teaches his people the difference between good and bad theology. Now, I wonder if we all take up that and do that. Or if we have the mind, oh, we'll just leave that to the pastor. Because if you're doing that, you're missing out badly. And you've got a long way to go in regard to being a good servant of Jesus Christ. Because no matter what capacity, you don't have to be up here to do that, but you need to be doing that in your own capacity of leading and teaching, whoever that might be. There are a number of applications here, but I just want to point out one at this time. You see, being a good servant of Jesus Christ will entail warning those who are in our care of false teaching. Uh, That is, teaching that contradicts biblical truth. But the negative responsibility, that negative responsibility should be offset and balanced in how we positively care and value good, solid, faithful Bible preaching and teaching. It needs to be. In other words, you know of some people, you know, they'll put their whole lives on a course that is all about 
pointing out bad theology, pointing out. I just get screeds of stuff in the mail and they hang out on this hobby horse and whether it'll be against Roman Catholicism or whether it'll be against some other uh, false cult, they spend their whole lives focusing energy on that particular false teaching. No, that's not what the scripture teaches. We need to be balanced in this. And we'll be balanced in how we value good, solid, faithful Bible preaching and teaching. So let me get real practical up close and personal here. If I look at the last decade of this church and see the movements of its members, I see a lot of people who have come in these doors and at some stage, sometimes years, sometimes months, sometimes a decade, they move out. Some for not so good reasons and some for very legitimate reasons. At the end of the day, in the mix of all this movement, people will come and go. And I don't believe that the next decade will be any different. People will come and go. That's just how it is. But in the mix of all this movement, you will need to find a church, right? A good servant of Jesus Christ will only go to a church and will seek out a church where they can be nourished and fed on faithful Bible teaching and preaching. In other words, this needs to be a priority. I have seen, sadly, even against my counsel, people who will choose a job or whatever and they'll go to a city, they'll go to a town and then they'll say, okay, now I better start looking at a church. I would suggest that should be a first priority before you even accept the job. I told you I was going to get real up close and personal. I'm not going to be here forever. I'm getting on. God willing, I'll probably my wife and I will probably head back to New Zealand. I've even been asked, well, where are you going to go? I said, well, first priority is where there will be a good church that teaches faithfully the truth of God. That'll be my first priority. Because if it's not, I won't go to that place. And I think there's one or two churches like that in New Zealand, by the way. Not many, but one or two. And so the reason a good servant will do that is because, why? Is they care and value rightly what it means to be nourished on the word of faith and sound doctrine. They value that. This is the first and most important thing anyone should do when they should move. Because also that spells out a good, healthy church. Of course, you may find... You may find many who faithfully expound the scriptures but still fall short of what the apostle is advocating here, right? Now listen carefully on this. There are many who will give fine expositions on certain texts but they often fail in explaining good and right theology along with the bad and wrong theology that sound doctrine attracts. They won't go there. They'll kind of stop short of that. I have found over and over when you preach the word of God expositionally and faithfully deliver God's mind as recorded in his word, it always seems to attract opposing and wrong theology. It'll come out. There will be opposition. And because of that, many pastors and teachers stop short of getting up close and personal and naming erroneous teachers and their teaching that is invading the minds of the believers in our day. They'll stop short of that because, oh, that's too negative. You'll chase people out the door. No, this is what Paul says here we must do. 
It's a bit like many today who love to preach on the positive aspects of God's love toward us. A fantastic subject. And that is positive. But in that they fail to mention his hatred of sin and his wrath against the unrepentant sinner. They preach a man-centered gospel as we've tagged it these days. See, a good servant of Jesus Christ is not a rah-rah person, folks, who dwells on the positive truth. All that does is often drum up a whole lot of hype and wrong enthusiasm. A good servant of Jesus Christ will teach what is right and will also spell out the error and the wrong teaching that is prevalent in their day. And it changes from decade to decade. Why? Because this helps you to become more discerning over what is right according to the scriptures and what is wrong and what is alluring many believers out there to their destruction as far as their testimony goes. So that's the first point. Our second point is a good servant of Jesus Christ will be nurtured by the study of the scripture. We see this in the second part of verse 6. Paul here states that a good servant of, of Jesus Christ is constantly nourished on the words of faith and of sound doctrine. This quality, by the way, is basic to excellence in ministry. It's basic. But sad to say, it's sadly lacking in the church today. Many pastors today take on a CEO, or churches, I should say, take a CEO mentality where it's all about the business of the church. It's where study and spending large amounts of time in the Word of God, it's almost looked upon as an interruption into their daily schedule. John Piper wrote a wonderful book dealing with this many years ago and he says, brothers, we are not professionals. And how true that is. And so Paul is reminding Timothy that good pastors, good preachers, good ministers, good servants of Jesus Christ are nourished on the word of God and its sound doctrine. And folks, if that's true for the pastor, it's also true for the members in the pews, right? It's got to be. Not one thing for me and one thing for you, no. If that's true for shepherds, it's also true for sheep. Paul's message to us in verse 6 is, grow up on sound doctrine. Be nourished by sound teaching and apply it to your lives and grow in it. The good servant of Jesus Christ is nourished on the words of the faith and of sound doctrine. What for? In order to warn or be warned in him or herself of the error that is out there. And I'm positive that's why so many genuinely born-again Christians are being sucked in by the plethora of false teaching out there. It's because they haven't bothered to nurture themselves or see themselves nurtured in sound doctrine. You see, folks, if you're not immersed in the truth, when error comes along the way, no alarm bells will ring. You know that? Oh, that's all right. Oh, that's okay. I was just talking to someone recently about a book that was written half a dozen years ago, and it's still kind of circulating. You go down to Kurong, and there's stacks of them down there. And, um, and when this person said, oh, it's a really interesting book, I, ha- couldn't, I couldn't remain silent. I said, be very careful. 
Be very careful because there's a lot of serious error in that book. If you want to know what book I'm talking about, I'm talking about John Young's The Book on the Shack. Doesn't take too much of a discerning Christian actually to see the error in that book, but I was just using that as an example. If you're not immersed in the truth, when error comes a long way, no warm bath. You know what they did years and years ago, and you would have heard this before, when people they had to know what a counterfeit bill looked like, whether it was a ten dollar note, a hundred dollar note, a fifty dollar note. They used to train people by letting them handle. All they used to do for hours on end is handle genuine. Dollar, ten dollar, hundred dollar bills over and over again. Handle it, look at it, handle it, look at it, handle it, look at it, handle it, look at it. And now and again they used to shove a very good counterfeit in it and instantly it showed up. They thought, hey, that's different. That's different. There's got to be something wrong with that one. You see, it's only as they handled the genuine article and were totally immersed in that genuine article were they able to discern the wrong one when it came up. We need the nurture of sound doctrine to warn, but we also need it to be transformed, transformed into the image of Christ as we need to be. So often Christians, you know, they turn off when they hear the word doctrine and have an idea that is irrelevant to them. That's for the pastor, that's for the theologian, that's for the seminary student. In other words, they might consider even a how-to class on some practical aspect of Christian living. Oh, that's relevant to me. But when there's a Bible doctrine class offered, they'll, oh, no, 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 that's not for me. Folks, we need constant intakes and large doses of sound biblical doctrine. We need that to be good servants of Jesus Christ. So we learn from this that the good servant of Jesus Christ not only warns of erroneous doctrine, but also are those who are growing up on sound biblical doctrine. And if you want to know more about that and how to do that, you come and see me later. Okay, we see the point three here. A good servant of Jesus Christ will understand that false teaching is to be shunned. We see this in the first part of verse seven. And so Paul is not done with the dangerous influence of false teaching yet. He flips the coin, as it were, uh, which has said, be strong in the word. And the flip side instructs, have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. Now, put your mind at risk. This is not a slur, by the way, even though it may sound like us. You have to put yourself back in history in Paul's day. This is not a slur on all the ladies in general. But it was a common expression of the day that described something that had no credibility. Paul's main point here is that he is taking a real sarcastic poke at false teachers. He's sarcastically saying that these false teachers who claim to have a more profound message than the apostles, including himself, what they have to say, we would say it's just old wives' tales. In a common expression. That's what Paul is saying in this passage. He's saying it's fables. It's a Greek word, muthos. It's where we get the English word myth from. He's saying that these false teachers and their teaching, it's all empty, it's unprofitable. And because it's empty and unprofitable, it's harmful and it hurts people. Why? Because it cannot build them up and it does not build them up. All it does is weaken them in the faith. It can't help their Christian life. 
So what is good servants of Jesus Christ to do with these, these fables? What are we to do with teachings of the Joyce Myers and the Joel Olsteins and karma and self-realization and yoga and, and many other self-accusations in experiences? There are heaps of them out there. Eastern mysticism, etc. New Age stuff, there's heaps of it out there. What are we to do with that? Our text tells us, have nothing to do with worldly fables. There's one word in the Greek here, by the way, which is a whole lot stronger than our English translation might imply in this case. It means reject or put them away, shun them. It doesn't say dabble with them. Oh, I'll just see what it's all about. Oh, there might be some good in it. No, shun them. Paul uses the same word in 2 Timothy 2, 3, 23 when he says, but refuse, there's the word, foolish and ignorant speculations knowing that they produce quarrels. It needs to be understood that if knowing and obeying God's truth is for our spiritual betterment and is that which brings about transformation and, and conforming to the image of Christ, if that's what truth does... Any philosophy or any idea or thinking that is contrary to sound biblical doctrine must be what? It must be rejected. It must be shunned. It's that simple. We must not even dabble with it. False doctrine contributes nothing constructive to the Christian life and is consequently harmful. It is. And so Paul says to Timothy, have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for senile old ladies to chatter about because there's no credibility. And so for those of us in leadership, God expects us to have pure minds, right? Matter of fact, you're all in leadership in some aspect or another, whether it's the home, whether it's whatever. God expects us to have pure minds full of God's truth for our lives and anything else other than what is pure and right and true is unprofitable and false which we need to avoid like the plague itself, can I say. Fourthly, a good servant of Jesus Christ will engage in spiritual discipline to pursue godliness. We see this in the second part of verse 7 right through to the end of verse 9. And so here Paul does it again. It's almost like he has this coin in his pocket and he flips it again and just what he says, an imaginary coin. And he says, on the other hand, here's what you need to do. Not only must you shun false teaching, but you almost also must discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. You see that? It's very key, this instruction. And the words Paul uses here, it's not an option. He's not saying, well, if you really want to get serious with the Lord, you can, if you like, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. No, no, no. What he gives here is an imperative. It's in the imperative form. It's a command here. In other words, Paul is saying that a good servant of Jesus Christ will be engaging in spiritual disciplines. And so what he does is he takes us to the gymnasium 
to illustrate what he's talking about. This means they, that those believers who are good servants of Jesus Christ, they will be deliberately practicing and training themselves with a view of developing spiritual worship in every aspect of our lives. Whether it's in the workplace, whether it's in the home, whether it's on vacation, whether it's in church, every aspect of our, our lives should be and needs be an act of worship and something that brings glory to God. And so this is what he's on about here. It's sad to say some Christians shun any kind of spiritual discipline and tend to think that their once a week dip at church will do the trick. That's all they need, they think. But here Paul says, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. In other words, you need to do the exercise. You need to do the hard yard. You need to work out to grow in grace with a goal to godliness. And that's what Paul is saying. He's literally saying, work it out, sweat it out, exercise yourself for godliness. Deliberately practice and train with a view of cultivating your life from within true spiritual worship. What for? With the view of godliness. By the way, the word discipline, many of you will know this, is the Greek word gymnazo. It's where we get our English word gymnasium and gymnastics from, by the way. And so we are to actively pursue godliness. And he's telling us, we're to actively pursue it, to cultivate it by spiritual discipline. So what is godliness, by the way? We might ask that, what is godliness? Very important question. It's easy to rush over that word without thinking about what it is. Godliness is all about responding rightly to God and to life with a right heart attitude. You got that? Godliness is all about responding rightly to God and life with a right heart attitude. I wonder if we work out at doing exactly that. Or do we just let it flow, let it rip, whatever comes out of our mouth, go with your heart, we kind of say. I wonder if we train ourselves to respond rightly to whatever happens in life toward God. You know, I'm amazed at the personal discipline some of our athletes engage in to hopefully be the best of the best in their field of sporting venture. Well, that's the image that the Apostle Paul has here in our text. Do we discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness? A good servant of Jesus Christ will do so. They will discipline themselves to read the Bible regularly, to pray. They will be selfless and they will even go without in order to gain godliness. I wonder if we train ourselves to do that. It's hard work, you know. It's hard work to set up a time of the day to be alone and to read the scriptures and to pray and to pour your heart out to God. Uh, it may mean going without that coffee that you could be having in the morning or, or whatever. It's hard work, you know. There is a bit of selflessness required. This is what Paul is on about. And so Paul continues with this gymnasium imagery saying that bodily or physical discipline can be helpful. Some of us here run marathons. Some of us here go to the gym. 
Some of us here play squash. Me, I go for a walk every morning. I used to train for rugby. And believe it or not, I used to have, you know, uh, go push weights and all that sort of thing. And, and my, I, I never had six-packs that were fully ripped or anything like that. But, but a young person could do that, you know. And it does give you a buzz and it can be helpful. And so Paul uses this imagery that bodily exercises, exercise is only of a little help and a little gain. He uses this to contrast the value of being spiritually fit which only benefits the present. You see, to be physically fit only benefits the present. I hope you realise that. As you see, I haven't got my six-packs anymore. I can't run anymore. (laughs) I can walk at a reasonable rate most mornings. You see, physical fitness don't last. There's no eternal value in it. This is what Paul's explaining and using it here. But when we come to being spiritually fit, it has everlasting and eternal value. It will reap eternal dividends when we pursue and discipline ourselves for godliness. Eternal dividends is what is at stake here if we don't go down this trail. What personal disciplines are you engaging in, folks? Only the temporary stuff? It's of little value. Or the eternal stuff. Then verse 8, Paul caps off with a confirming affirmation of this vital importance of being a good servant of Jesus Christ. He says, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. In other words, it's absolutely vital that believers are disciplining themselves for the purpose of godliness because nothing else in life, be it reputation, wealth, fame or earthly comforts, has any eternal value. That's what he says. We come to our fifth one, a good servant of Jesus Christ is not a slacker but committed to hard work. Verse 10. This verse, by the way, puts to bed the myth that being a good servant of Jesus Christ is all about letting God do his own thing in our lives with no input from us at all. You often heard the expression, let go and let God. That is bad theology, right? Whether we do it ignorantly or whether we do it purposely, it is bad theology. The good servant of Jesus Christ will what? What does the text say? Will labor and strive. Now, I don't know about you, but it doesn't take a Philadelphian lawyer to know that that is all about hard work. Matter of fact, in its original words in the Greek, this labor and strive has the idea of working out to the point of exhaustion and agony when necessary. That's how strong it is. I see some of these marathon runners. You know, they are in agony. They come and their mouths are wide open and some of them don't even make it. They drop down beside before they, their finish line. Agony. That, that's the kind of words that... That is the word that Paul is using here. And so why do they do that? Why is a good servant of Jesus Christ, why does he or she go to such length or need to go to such length in disciplining themselves for godliness? Is because, this is why... They have their hope firmly fixed on the living God. You see that? Good servants of Jesus Christ go all out physically and mentally in order to pursue godliness. This commitment to hard work is linked, by the way, to verse 8, the goal of godliness. 
And the hard work component of being a good servant is necessary. And Paul gives two reasons in another part of Scripture why it is necessary. I'll just give you them here. One is that every true believer is going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. You know that? We have that in in, in, um, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 to 11. We're all going to appear before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. And what the text tells us there is so that our service can be evaluated by God himself, whether it be good or bad. I would suggest that is a good goal for us to get down to some hard work, right? And then secondly, unbelievers face eternal judgment. And we all know that. We were on the road to that once, but the Lord saved us. But unbelievers are still on the road to eternal judgment. So out of the fear of the Lord and in the fear of the Lord, we proclaim Christ to these folks, to these people. That's hard work. But it must be. It must be. Colossians 1, 28 and 29 tells us that we must be proclaiming Christ. And so this begs the question of myself, and let it be your question also, how committed are we to hard work in the pursuit of godliness? It may be a challenge that we can be perhaps turned around if need be, because being in the know of this demand, you know what it can do? It can spur us on to a more serious effort. It really can. I read of a missionary called Henry Martin. He was a missionary to India. And it's quoted, and this is what he said. Well, that missionary, he caught hold of this divine command. And uh, when he reached the shores of India, this is what he said. Now let me burn out for God. You got that? Now let me burn out for God. You see, his hope was fixed on the living God. His hope was so real that it proved itself by an ongoing willingness to labor and strive to the point of exhaustion if necessary, when necessary. And so he, like the Apostle Paul, constantly labored in the light of eternity before him. What motivates and drives us, folks? Do we labor and strive because our hope is fixed on the living God? Or is our energy spent on a dead and vanishing hope that will one day be burnt up at the judgment seat or if not before. I trust that is not the case. Then we see that Paul adds another uh, reminder on the verse, end of verse 10 as to who our God is. He says, who is the saviour of all men, especially believers. You see that? The statement has caused some debate down through the years. But in short, rather than going to all the details, we do know from looking at the whole of Scripture that this does not mean or tell us that all men will be saved. In other words, the Bible never teaches universalism where everyone will be saved. The key to understanding this last phrase is the word especially believers. Because that's what it says, especially believers. In other words, let me explain it briefly like this. God is the Saviour of all men. How does he do that? How is he a saviour of all men? Well, by his grace, every single one of us in Adelaide, in the world today, 
and breathe and the scriptures tell us in Matthew 5.45 that God sends the rain and the sun on the righteous and the wicked. You got that? So in that sense, God is a saviour to all men but to unbelievers only in a temporary sense. That is in a very temporary sense are the all being provided for in the here and now. So there's a temporary sense that he is a saviour. He is looking after. He is delivering them temporarily. And so the unbeliever is also being saved in a temporary and limited sense in that they are not being cut down in instant divine wrath for their sin. But what does God do? He acts what toward them? He acts patiently toward all men, right? So in that sense, that limited sense, he today is the saviour of all men. But the believer, he is saved in an eternal and an unlimited sense. We have been blessed in the here and now, like every other person on this planet, with all the earthly blessings. But here's the difference, especially believers. We have been blessed also with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, in Christ Jesus. And folks, the heart has not yet been told. And so this wonderful truth motivated Paul and it needs to motivate every believer in order to be a hard worker and a good servant of Jesus Christ. And then finally, a good servant of Jesus Christ teaches with authority. For Timothy to be a good servant, he was to be what? Entertaining, intriguing, popular, funny? No. It says here that he was to prescribe, and that means to command or order, by the way. That's the strength of that word, command or order. He was to prescribe these things or teach these things and teach these things. In other words, with passion and conviction, he was to deliver God's word to the people, to the people that God entrusted to him. He was to be authoritative in this teaching. That's what these two mean, the words mean, prescribe and teach. He was not to be a wimp in the pulpit. He was to be authoritative. Jesus was that, remember? He was authoritative, wasn't he? He taught with authority and not as the scribes, remember? A faithful servant of the Lord is bold. I hope you're bold. A faithful servant of the Lord confronts sin when needs be. You know how easy it is when someone says something or does something, oh, well, I don't want to embarrass them, or I don't want to get on the wrong side of them, and so I'll just let someone else speak to them. Faithful of the servant of the Lord does not do that, folks. They love that person so much that they will confront their sin because they know that their spiritual well-being is at stake. Faithful servant of the Lord calls out disobedience for what it is without going soft and hesitant. Paul told Titus the same thing in his book, and he says in Titus 2.15, These things speak and exhort and and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Of course, as we think of authority, someone asked 
Pastor John MacArthur recently, what authority should the pastor have over his congregation? I loved his answer. A pastor has no authority at all over his congregation. And I'll say that. I have no authority over you as a congregation. And I want you to know that. No authority whatsoever. It's the word of God that's got authority. The pastor or the teacher from the pulpit, he has been called to the ministry to give out God's authority. And so we should be authoritative in what God has given us in his authoritative word. That's all there is. But me personally, I have no authority over anyone. So to wrap this all up, let us ask ourselves a question. Where are we on these six aspects of being a good servant of Jesus Christ? I hope we've evaluated ourselves. Whether your ministry is from the pulpit here or anywhere or at home with your family and your spouse in the Sunday school room and your home group teaching or wherever it might be, we have an obligation to strive and labour toward godliness in order to be a good servant of Jesus Christ. So are we discipling ourselves to be spiritually fit? May God add a blessing to his words this morning, shall we pray. Our Father in heaven, we do give thanks this morning for your word. As we have just considered that your word is our authority. And in Jesus Christ and him alone, we have everything that we need for life and godliness. And so, Father, we thank you for the word that tells us all we need to know of Jesus Christ and the gospel and how we should live and that we're to live lives of discipline. We're to take up our cross and follow the Lord no matter what the cost. So, Father, help us to understand the whole gospel from beginning to end so that we might be nurtured in sound doctrine, that we may be warned of ourselves and warn others of the error that is so prevalent even in our society today. Help us in this, we pray. Take us to our homes in safety. And may this week be a week where we are challenged from the word of God and we change. Transform us, Lord. Change us, everyone, to be more like our Saviour, Jesus Christ. We ask these things in his worthy and precious name. Amen.